According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Proverbs chapter 20. We've been in Proverbs 20 now for two or three weeks, I think. It's been a little bit. We're ready. Uh, we were looking at the sluggard last week from verse 4. And uh, I'm going to flip a page to get to verse 5. A plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. So second time now we've encountered deep water in uh, the book of Proverbs. And uh, the last time we were kind of surprised when we saw the connotation. It's, um, uh, it can be problematic when it's deep and when it's stagnant. And so we'll be talking about that again here today. In fact, we'll review some of the things that we had done back uh, the first time that we had dealt with the, uh, the deep water in, uh, in the previous context. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the privilege and blessing that it is to assemble together. Father, we call upon your faithfulness to, uh, to bless our time, to keep the equipment running, to do all that uh, you would have for us to do on this day. Open our eyes, open our ears, and soften our hearts, Father. Bless our time of study. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right, and so uh, dealing with the deep water... A plan in the heart of a man is like deep water. So who looks upon the heart? But a man of understanding draws it out. And so we got really a couple of issues that we're working here. First of all is the heart that only God can look upon. But then is the problem when something is, is uh, buried that doesn't come out. And how do, we get, how do we draw it out? And so we want to see what the principle is here. And uh, biblically speaking, not uh, plunging into uh, anything Freudian or anything anti-biblical or anti-God with respect to these things. And so let's take a look at it there. We'll just run through what we've covered already. We covered the wine issue in verse 1. Provoking the king in verse 2. Don't want to do that. Uh, the quarreling and the temptations to quarrel there and the idea of giving your quarrel a Sabbath rest, <laughs> just give it a rest. Uh, keeping away from strife or giving strife a rest is an honor for a man. Any fool will quarrel. We talked about that. And then last week we were dealing with the sluggard. This is the seventh appearance of the sluggard in the book of Proverbs. We have seven more still to come. Fourteen times that the sluggard appears in the process of, of this book. I think God's making a point there. If he's going to address it fourteen times we better pay attention. All right, so now we get to the heart. A plan in the heart of a man is like deep water. And we've seen some things related to this already back in chapter 18, but let's, we'll pick up on that here shortly, but let's just deal with this here uh, for now. Uh, remember, only God looks upon the heart. And so if you've got a plan in your heart, or I've got a plan in my heart, and it's just down deep in there, <clears throat> my, my wife's not going to know about it. My, my kids aren't going to know about it. My church isn't going to know it. Nobody's going to know about it. Only God looks upon the heart. And so if I keep it there and I keep it buried and I keep it deep, then, uh, then what happens? It just sits there. When does it ever get expressed? When does it come forth? 
When is it ever manifest or realized? Or does it simply go as, a, uh, as an unfulfilled plan, as, uh, as an unmanifest design? That can't be good, and, and we'll see if Scripture describes it as good or not. I think we're going to describe that it's not. Uh, but a man of understanding draws it out. Does that mean that, that it's possible for a man of understanding to look upon the heart, to know what's there? How does he draw it out otherwise if he doesn't know? Can you draw it out without knowing? Or is the man of understanding the same as the person in, in the A part, I think it is, that the man of understanding in, in 5b is the same man in 5a who has the, the plan deep in his heart. Does that make sense? And so um, the man of understanding draws it out. In other words, he's not going to just let it fester and sit there in his heart and then get stagnant like, uh, like dead water would if it's not flowing. These things have to flow. All right, so first of all, we remind ourselves that only God looks upon the heart. Let me get my Bible window up here. Make it slightly larger so we can see what we're dealing with. All right. Um, remember, this is a foundational, fundamental principle of Scripture, and we mention it every now and then. I think it's worthwhile to mention it as often as we can so we don't forget it. It's part of what sets God apart from everybody else, from any fall, a fallen angel, any poser, uh, anyone who claims to be God or like God. Uh, the fact that he cannot look upon the heart is proof that he is not God when it comes right down to it, because only God looks upon the heart. And, uh, and those are the issues there. So in 1 Samuel 16, we can turn over there, and it doesn't take a lot to prove this, and there's a lot of other verses as well that go with this. Uh, but for our purposes this morning, I think it's sufficient to simply uh, take it from here. Remember in 1 Samuel 16, what's happening is Samuel is showing up here to anoint the next king. And this is uh, it's a marvelous story. It's one I think we're familiar with. Uh, we t- we've turned here on a number of occasions for different reasons to bring out different principles. Um, I think it's curious how chapter 15 closes and uh, the issues of, of uh, uh, King Saul and why he was disobedient and what God's remedy was for Saul's disobedience. Uh, remember King Saul kept Agag alive uh, in defiance of the will of God. God wanted everyone killed in this episode. And so Saul kept him alive and started making excuses and uh, Samuel uh, has to step in and take care of business. And uh, so we read here at the end of chapter 15, for Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Okay? And uh, if you're cosmic minded, if you're uh, aligned with the things of this world, you may not understand what the, the plan of God is and, uh, and what's in store. And the Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. He figured he was going to skate because Saul had given him a, a free pass. Not realizing, of course, what does Agag know? He's a pagan. What does he know? That, you know, a king is one thing, but a prophet of Yahweh is going to be obedient to, to Yahweh and Samuel's going to be obedient here. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. All right, chopped him up. And now we've got Agag pieces, okay? This is serious. You know, prophets didn't mess around. And uh, different things there. So then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. 
For Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So this kind of closes that chapter and closes that, that, uh, that narrative there. And so it's, it's sad, right? But this is what sets the table then for what is following. And this is now uh, Samuel traveling to Bethlehem because this is where the Lord is directing him to go, where he's going to find the, the next king, the king that God wants, the king after his own heart, not the king that Israel wants, not the king that, that uh, has the attractiveness of the people, we understand. All right, so this gets us from chapter 15 into chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And so be smart about it. And this is kind of curious. It's not a lie, but it is, um, it is being smart about what we're doing and uh, the, the things publicly that are known by those that are hostile to us and the things that are publicly not known, you know, it's on a need-to-know basis, all that need-to-know. Just, uh, you know, you're not, you're not lying, but I think you have to be smart. You have to be, this is why Jesus said, be shrewd as a serpent, yet harmless as a dove. And so the Lord is instructing him here, well, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And that provides a legitimate cover story, if you will. It's reasonable. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said. He came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him. <laughs> okay, And this, you know, we, we know why, right? We know why, because we just read it at the end of chapter 15. You know, when, when Samuel shows up, he, he, may, he might mean business here. This could, be, this could be bad news. This is the prophet that chopped up Agag into pieces. All right, and now he's coming to Bethlehem, like, uh, hello. You know, it's, and Bethlehem was such a small place, an obscure place. It was, it was too small to be counted among the clans of Judah. Uh, so, I mean, you can't go there unless you're intending to go there. You're not passing by on your way, you know. It's kind of curious. It's like going to Lukenbach. If you're going to go to Lukenbach, you've got to want to get there. And you've got to you know, know where it is and know how to find it. You don't just accidentally show up in Lukenbach. Same thing with Bethlehem here. Here comes the prophet Samuel and the elders are like, uh, you know, you wonder have they ever had a prophet of Israel come to visit their, their village before. Anyway, so they come trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? <laughs> Is this a good visit or a not so good visit? Are we in trouble? He said, in peace, I've come in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So the whole village has a general welcome, but Jesse, the household of Jesse, has the uh, specific invitation. Of course, he is the uh, Bethlehemite and uh, this is uh, his honor. All right, so when they entered, this is Jesse now and his boys are coming in. When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, wow, <laughs> okay? doesn't say wow in English, but it's in the Hebrew. Wow, he's just impressed. Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So the first boy that walks in, the firstborn son, the oldest of Jesse's boys, 
And Saul, uh, Samuel is just impressed. Absolutely impressed. And that's the problem. This is how Israel ended up with King Saul. And uh, because King Saul was, you know, tall, dark, and handsome and had all the impressive features and everything that, that folks were looking for in a king. And so Samuel has to get a little remedial Bible class here, some doctrinal updates to, to, uh, to learn these things. All right. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. So there you have it. I mean, this is, to me, this is one of the easiest passages to find. It's, it's a well-known story. It's, uh, it's a blessing to, to see it and to be reminded that even, uh, you know, even pastors, the older believers, uh, a, an old prophet like Samuel, uh, who who should know this and really does know this, but you know you can forget it. There can be occasions where you just kind of you toss your doctrine out the window because you're looking at something that's just too good to be true, and your earthly eyes are dazzled. And God says, "Wait a minute, you know better than that. Quit being dazzled. Get your get your spiritual eyes back open again, and don't forget that uh, God sees not as man sees. Let's look as let's look with our divine viewpoint, not the human viewpoint." So. If somebody like Samuel with his wisdom and maturity and, and stature, uh, if he can get forgetful and, 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 and uh, so we, we can too, right? I mean, who, uh, who among us is not vulnerable to, uh, to those kind of things? Anyway, and then I think we know how the rest of this turns out. Jesse then called Aminadab, made him pass before Samuel. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And you kind of wonder at this point, you know, we don't know what Saul, what Samuel was thinking at this point, but when the second boy came through, it's like the Lord was pretty gracious to Samuel and said, oh, not this one either, <laughs> okay? And you wonder, you know, how, uh, how amazing were these men? So Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So Samuel said to Jesse, are these all your children? <laughs> And at a certain point, Jesse's going to, you know, be suspicious. He probably already is. You know, why, what are you, why are you in, investigating my, my sons here? He says, well, there remains yet the youngest. And uh, behold, he is tending the sheep. You know, he wasn't even going to attend. I, you know, I made him do the work out there and brought the older boys in. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. <laughs> So yeah, Jesse's got to be wising up to this and, and uh, it's curious how this all unfolds. So he sent and brought him in and he was ruddy, usually reddish, you know, thought of as maybe a redhead, uh, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. And again, it may not be what uh, the, the earthly expectations might have found attractive or what might have been um, expected of a king. But this is the one God wanted. So Samuel takes the horn and anoints him in the midst of his brothers. Something else I think, when we did this in the Life of David series years ago, I mean, we, we were kind of guessing at, at his age, kind of guessing how, you know, how young he is when he fights Goliath and how young he is here in this episode uh, and, and other things. Um, we know how old he is when he becomes the king, but there's, there's quite a bit of time. I mean, there's a gap. He's anointed on this day, but he doesn't become king for, for several more years. That's, uh, that's significant too. I think that also shows us the, that not only does God look on the heart and see things 
in ways we don't, but God also has a timetable in ways that we don't always appreciate either. And we, uh, we get in a rush, especially once we know, hey, this is the will of God, let's go do it now. Well, wait a minute, it is the will of God, but just prepare and wait for when that day comes, see? And sometimes that's the hardest thing in the world, like if you're training to be a pastor and you finish your training and you're, you're ready to take a ministry and then it, a ministry doesn't open up right away and you're wondering, well, you know, what's wrong with me and what, did I waste all that time training and what's God going to do and what's, what's coming next? See, that's why we pray, uh, pray for these guys as they're seeking their placement. All right, so God looks upon the heart. He's the only one that looks upon the heart. No one else can. There's a rhetorical question that's asked in uh, Jeremiah 17, 9. This is a verse I've known since I was maybe five years old, six years old. I'm trying to think back. This was uh, in a vacation Bible school at Evergreen Baptist Church. This, well, I would have been older than that. I would have been nine or ten. Anyway, um, vacation Bible school. And uh, this was the verse, Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who could know it? And uh, as a rhetorical question, uh, Jeremiah is not just throwing his hands up and saying who can know it as if nobody in the universe can know it. The answer is God knows it. God and only God knows it. The fact that he looks upon the heart is part of the evidence and testimony that he is God. And uh, these, these fallen angels, these posers that say they can be like God, well, first of all, they can't tell the end from the beginning. You know, they can't uh, chart out the whole Alpha to Omega program uh, with certainty like God has already done because they can't see the future. They're time creatures moving forward as we are in the time stream. So they can't, uh, they're not outside of space and time. And then secondly, they can't look upon the heart like God looks upon the heart. He says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And so you see that this is part of who he is part of his glory. He's not going to give his glory to another. There's no other that has the capacity to look upon the heart. All right, and so these are undeniable. These are the principles that we know from Scripture. And so when we're back in uh, Proverbs 20 then and we see a, a plan in the heart of man is like deep water, we, uh, we're going into the verse with that understanding that it's in the heart of man. Only God can look upon it. So a man of understanding drawing it out only is doing so as it's not a separate man. It's the same man in, verse, in, in the B part that's in the A part. And it's that man who's letting God draw it out. Letting God work on his heart. Testing the, searching the heart. Testing the mind. And uh, drawing it out. All right, so let's, uh, let's build on that. By the way, if you want more uh, verses than, than just these, 1 Samuel 16 and Jeremiah 17, there's tons of additional verses and you can hunt for them. Um, you know, a lot of times you get these little cross-references in the, in the Bible window there, like I the Lord search the heart and you see the, the little A right there. And usually you get some cross-references that are put there by your Bible publisher and, uh, and those are going to be very useful. You'll notice the first one on that list is 1 Samuel 16, 7, right? It's a cross-reference here to uh, Jeremiah 17, 10. And it's not alone. Look what else is there. 1 Chronicles, Psalm 139, Proverbs 17, 3. Uh, you've got a whole list of these. 
Romans 8.27, Revelation 2.23. And so you've got a, a collection of verses there that, that are worth looking up, worth seeing how they connect to this verse, how they relate. It gives you additional testimonies to the principle that's uh, being communicated in this particular verse. And so that's, uh, that's a good thing to, uh, to do in your own study. In fact, you can spend afternoons, whole hours and hours just chasing rabbit trails, chasing cross-references, you know. And you, you start here and you go through all those and then you know what happens when you get to some of those other ones? There's more cross-references. And so you're going to start tracking those down, see. And so uh, like when you go to 1 Samuel 16, 7, God, uh, the Lord looks at the heart. Look there, there's a cross-reference there. And you say, hey, wait a minute, some of these are different verses. Some of these are not identical to those cross-references we had in, in Jeremiah. Because here I'm looking at 1 Kings 8, I'm looking at 1 Samuel 2, Luke 16, 15. There's additional cross-references. So uh, like I say, you can, you can spend hours and hours, you can kill an entire day just tracking down cross-references, chasing rabbit trails down, and, and compiling, compiling a comprehensive um, biblical understanding of, of, of an idea, of a concept, of a principle that's, uh, that's contained in the Word of God. I think that's worthwhile. All right. Now, as far as drawing it out, a man of understanding draws it out. Back to what we're dealing with here in Proverbs 20 and verse 5. It's deep in the heart. We want to draw it out. Why do we want to draw it out? If a man of understanding draws it out, and if uh, that has to be either yourself or the Lord, because no other man can, can look upon your heart, uh, but a man of understanding draws it out, that tells us that's a good thing. It's not a fool that draws it out. It's a man of understanding that draws it out. That means drawing it out is good. Okay, You want to draw it out. It's something that you don't want to let just sit there that's not manifest, that's not realized. And so... Um, that's uh, what we're saying here. That's what this verse is saying here. When we go back to Proverbs 18, let's remind ourselves of the other occasion where we had um, deep waters. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. Remember this? The difference between the deep waters that's not flowing and the brook, the bubbling brook that is flowing is, is the difference. Whether it's just sitting there as a deep well, it's inaccessible, or whether it's actually flowing and nourishing, that's the benefit. And we want to get these things flowing. Because if they don't flow, if they just sit there, what happens? What happens to water that just sits there? Say, we want it to be flowing. Water, flowing water is living water. So the fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. So we had some principles here, and uh, we gave some, uh, some notes, and I want to go ahead and put those back up on the screen as well so we can review those here today. Um, the notes that we looked at back in Proverbs 18.4, should be able to, there we go. This is a copy of the slide that we had in that slideshow that I copied over to this slideshow. Deep waters. Understand that the, the deep waters are hard to reach and hard to draw from. That's the, that's the statement that's made in, in chapter 18. It's the statement that's made here. Hard to reach and hard to draw from. 
being stagnant, they exhibit a poor condition or the poor condition of a wicked heart. And this is what we see and this is how the Lord describes it. And we have other passages that I think relate this principle as well. So because it's hard to reach, because it's hard to draw from, uh, the, the waters end up stagnant, becoming stagnant. And a plan ends up becoming stagnant. I mean, how long can you plot and plan and think about something and then just leave it as, a, as an unmanifest, unrealized concept? Is that what we're designed to do? Did God design us to just plot and plan and never do anything with the plot and the plan? Okay, remember this is all part of us being made in the image of God and what God is as a designer, as a planner, but also a doer. Plan the work, then work the plan. Okay? In any event. So, these are the verses here, and I'll get the, uh, we can run through these. There we go. So, we've already looked at Proverbs 18.4. In Proverbs 25, these are kind of the two main Proverbs talking about the deep waters. And um, let's look at Psalm 64, 7. Oops, that's not it. I fixed that. I thought I had fixed that. 64, 6. Here we go. Yeah, it's not verse 7, it's verse 6. I thought I had fixed that. I fixed it on paper, but I didn't fix it on the slide. All right. Psalm 64. Hear my voice, O God, is in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do iniquity. So there's those that are plotting David's downfall and they've got these secret plots. Well, good thing God looks upon the heart. God knows about all these secret plots. And David is, uh, is just resting in God, re- trusting in God's faithfulness. So hide me from the secret counsel of evildoers, from the tumult of those who do inequity, who have sharpened their tongue like a sword. Uh, they aimed bitter speech as their arrow to shoot from concealment at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They hold fast to themselves an evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who can see them? They devise injustices, saying, we are ready with a well-conceived plot. For the inward thought and the heart of a man are deep. And here's the the imagery again, the language of what we're dealing with in in both places in Proverbs and also here. The idea in in the... in the inward parts where those deep waters are, are found is that they're, they, they fester, they, uh, they plot, they scheme. The, uh, the, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Which we've read already in, in Jeremiah. And so uh, the heart, the inward thought and the heart of a man are deep. And they're plotting some terrible things. Ecclesiastes 7.24 What has been is remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can discover it? I directed my mind to know, to investigate, to seek wisdom and an explanation, and to know 
the evil of folly and the foolishness of madness. And so here he is, trying to, again, trying to gain an understanding of these deep things. Remote and exceedingly mysterious. Who can, or exceedingly deep, who can discover it? So these things that are deep, they're rotten, they fester, and we can't get at them. Solomon, in all of his wisdom, couldn't get at them. He said, I directed my mind to know, to investigate. He couldn't draw it out. Only God can look upon that heart. Only God can transform that heart, which is what we need Him to do, because without uh, the grace of God transforming our heart, where are we? We're, we're fallen man in Adam, and, and, and that heart is a nasty thing. All right, so drawing the application back to Proverbs 20 and verse 5. A plan in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. Keep in mind, that's not your shrink, that you're paying 100 bucks an hour, $120 an hour, that you're laying on the couch talking to some, um, you know, <laughs> Freudian, yeah, Freud or Adler or Jung or any of these guys, okay? And, and the idea... That they can uh, that they can draw it out. That they can get you to to un you know unload yourself and to find these repressed memories and to uh, that and, and they're very skilled in in the art of, of conversation and, and interrogation and they'll they'll work with you to to you know talk about all kinds of stuff and usually they'll work on you to uh, to commit sins of the tongue uh, because they want you to gossip and slander. They want you to, uh, to, to spill all kinds of things that shouldn't be spoken of anyway. Uh, but that's their stock and trade. That's what they do. And then uh, when they get you to, to, to you know, gossip and slander, then uh, they can get you to start you know, blaming others and making excuses. And it all goes back to you know, your dad was mean to you in your childhood or whatever. Okay? But the, the fundamental principle is, or the, the, the foundational uh, idea is, is that these are experts that can look upon the soul and they can unlock these things and they can, you can find the truth within you. And uh, no, you're going to find wickedness within you is what you're going to find. The Word of God is what's going to transform you. Not this, uh, this satanic mechanism for um, horrible things. All right. Anyway, and if, if uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7 says, it's too deep for me, how is anybody else going to stand a chance, right? Because only God looks upon the heart. Again, we keep talking like that. All right, so this plan, it's like deep water. It's got to come out. The man of understanding is going to draw it out. But that man of understanding is you as the Word of God transforms you and as the Word of God does its work. Because that plan that's down deep in the heart is the plan that God has put in your heart, as the Word of God is shaping your thinking. Hopefully these things make sense. All right. So being stagnant, they exhibit the poor condition of a wicked heart. And Jesus testifies to this. uh, Paul testifies to this in Ephesians 4. Let's take a look at these things. Matthew 12, 34. Let's do that. You brood of vipers. Jesus was sure confrontational, wasn't he? (laughs) He didn't pull punches. When he was talking to a brood of vipers, he called them a brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. 
The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. And so this is the secret to the whole thing. That wicked heart, you don't need to, to, to talk through it with a, with a shrink and, 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 and understand it. You need, to, you need to kill it. You need to have that wicked heart transformed. You need the Word of God to, to totally transform what that wicked heart's all about. So that you can bring good treasure out of a good heart, not the evil treasure out of the evil heart. Let the Word of God transform you. Matthew 15 and verse 18. They're all concerned about washing their hands and cleansing and all this stuff. And, and uh, Peter says, explain the parable to us. He said, Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? He says, what's the real issue? The things that proceed out of the mouth that come from the heart, those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. Coming from the core of your being. That's the old man. What we're learning about in in, uh, Colossians. That old man that's been crucified, that's been circumcised. We need to keep it circumcised. Keep it crucified. Quit putting it back on and living to serve the dumb thing. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. Understand the spiritual truth. Ephesians 4.19 Verse 17 says, This I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the emptiness, the futility of their mind. That the lifestyle of the unbeliever or the death style of the unbeliever is, uh, is, is, is a lost estate in Adam. It's a lost estate. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. This is the old man. This is, this is the lost estate of the unbeliever in Adam. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you do not learn Christ in this way. See, we can, uh, not, not that we've earned it, not that we've deserved it, not that we're special, we're saved. And by the grace of God, we now have a new nature we can operate with. We can put on the new man and the one that's being renewed. We can take off the old man and we should every single day consciously decide I'm not wearing that outfit today. I'm wearing Christ today. And do that all day, every day. I'm wearing the new man today. I'm not going to put that old man back on. Because that old man and that wicked heart will, will uh, it's going to win every time. There's no, it's not a willpower battle between you and, and the sin it's an issue of submission. Are you wearing that old man? Then you've already lost that volitional battle. You chose to put that old man on. And that wicked heart's going to do all these things that we're looking at here. All right. So these deep waters being stagnant, they exhibit the poor condition of a wicked heart, whereas the fountain of wisdom is a free-flowing is free-flowing and clean. Now this is the Remember, this is the context of chapter 18 where the, the metaphor was being used of speaking. 
In chapter 20, the metaphor is being used of planning, of, of the plans of a man's heart. But, but I'm going to submit, and my, my concept here is that it's the same idea. Is that if, as long as it just sits there and doesn't flow, that's where it stagnates. But if it's free-flowing, that's what it's designed to be. That's when it's going to be clean. That's when it's going to be edifying. That's when it's going to be a blessing. Same thing for the plan. The plan is going to be uh, flowing. It's going to be clean. It's going to be a blessing. So uh, in Proverbs 18.4, again, that bubbling brook, it's free-flowing and clean. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. And what a joy to be able to share a plan. What a joy to be able to, to, uh, to fellowship in the Word of God. To be able to, to share that plan with, with other believers in the congregation and to, to uh, uh, join in prayer for the Father to, to achieve that plan. It's flowing and it's clean. Proverbs 10, 11. Most of these are going to be speaking contexts. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. And so the flowing of the word of God is a fountain of life. Flowing water is clean, it's pure, it's an, it blesses and edifies others. And so when we're able to fellowship in doctrine, it's a good thing, one to another. Proverbs uh, thirteen fourteen. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life to turn aside from the snares of death. Good understanding produces favor, but the way of the treacherous is hard. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool displays folly. It's curious how some of these that, are, that center on speaking also have, a, have a, an action element that that I think we can connect there and that we can see the, uh, the application. Um, but the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. Don't just keep it to yourself. Don't, don't uh, force the water down deep and never, never let it flow. Let it flow. Let it be the bubbling brook. Speak doctrine. Speak truth one to another. Speaking the truth in love. This is how we serve and how we edify, how we bless, how we minister to one another. You know, if if, uh, if you see a brother struggling or a sister struggling, uh, you know, just shutting up and not saying anything about it, uh, yeah, it, I mean, there's a time for to speak and a time to be silent. I get that, but to truly edify your brother, you got to open your mouth, say a scripture, say a principle, say something of truth that can resonate in their soul with the spirit of truth. That way it flows, that way the, the, the water doesn't just sit there stagnant, but it flows and it, it's a fountain of life. Proverbs 16.22. All right. Hopefully you understand what we're saying here. There's a time for silence, there's a time to speak. In fact, between husbands and wives there's a different dynamic there as well. Uh, we get that. First Peter talks about the woman who's able to win her husband without a word. And uh, there's a place for speaking with your life, and there's a place for speaking with your words, and, and hopefully we, we get that. That's not too difficult. All right, Proverbs 16.22. Understanding is a fountain of life to one who has it, but the discipline of fools is folly. 
The heart of the wise instructs his mouth. All these uh, passages that are connecting the thinking with the speaking. The heart of the wise instructs his mouth. So if you want your heart renewed, if the Word of God is going to transform your heart, that's the design. And then your heart devises the plan that the Word of God is shaping, that's the design. And then you let that, fl- you let that plan flow. Just like the words flow. The plan flows. And uh, draw it out. Don't just let the plan sit there deep in the heart. Draw it out. So the heart of the wise instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. What a benefit. What a benefit. And I love the way the Word of God does this. Sometimes uh, <laughs> we get to share the Scriptures and we don't even know what the Word of God's going to do. But uh, I tell you, it's a lot better than your own wisdom. So instead of trying to come up with some, you know, you've got a, a discouraged sister or something, and rather than trying to come up with something inspirational yourself, share the Psalms, share Proverbs, share Scripture, just share what you're learning. The Word of God is alive and powerful, and you'll be amazed at uh, the way that the Holy Spirit takes that Scripture and ministers with that Scripture to the, uh, to the brother that's in trouble. It's the... Um, it's a marvelous effect and power of the Word of God and the capacity that the Holy Spirit has to take those Scriptures and make them come alive. Make them uh, do what they're designed to do. Anyway. The, um, and maybe that's a, that's a topic for a different day as well, but I think the fundamental understanding of the um, Scriptures is that it's the, it's the power of God. It's not like the Bible is not designed to be... Um, like a pharmacy prescription. It's not designed to be uh, where uh, like a doctor or a pharmacist would, would say, well, okay, the problem is here in your, in your arm, you need this, or it's here in your, in your uh, kidney, you need this, or it's here. You know, they can, they can take chemicals, they can take pharmaceuticals, and they can tailor certain drugs for, for parts of the body that, that need treatment and other things going on. Uh, that's not the Bible. That's not the, the approach there. That, uh, you know, where we, we're trying to diagnose an issue and say, oh, this person's got a fear problem. Let me give them, let me give them my top five fear verses. Okay? I mean, you can do that, but is that really what it's designed to be? Or are we supposed to be growing in the whole counsel of the Word of God? Not just troubleshooting, you know, problem A, problem B, problem C, problem D. We want to have the comprehensive whole counsel approach to the Word of God. And the more we're transformed into the image of Christ, problems A, B, C, and D are going to take care of themselves. The Word of God is going to sort through all of that. Anyway, I think that's a a fundamental issue that some people abuse the Word of God with. John 4.14 Here's Jesus and the woman at the well. He asks her for a drink. And she's shocked that he's even talking to her. <laughs> yeah, so a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? There's a racial issue. There's a gender issue. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
But Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So she said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? It's like she's mocking him. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? But Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And so this is what we are now as believers. We have drunk the living water. We are saved. And having partaken of that living water, that thirst that the unbeliever is vulnerable to, we never have that vulnerability ever again. We never have that thirst again. But we sure encounter a whole world full of unbelievers that still have that thirst. And what is, our, what is it then our privilege to be able to do? We can then proclaim the gospel. We can then be the conduit for which that living water springs up. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or come all the way here to draw. She's still mocking him. She still fails to see that he's speaking to her in spiritual dimension and she's just thinking in earthly terms. Anyway, it's a fun chapter. I like what he does here. He says, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Okay. And, he, and this is where he just exposes everything and, and needed to do so. This is what gets her attention. Jesus said to her, you correctly said I have no husband, for you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. Okay? Again, confrontational. He didn't back down with a brood of vipers. He called him a brood of vipers. He didn't back down with this lady. He just laid it out there. And the woman said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Okay? She's not offended. She's not insulted. <laughs> she's, she's humbled. She's amazed. She's thrilled. You wonder how, you know, how long has she been looking for a prophet? She wants to get her questions answered. She's, uh, she's troubled by the, the uh, differences between Mount uh, Gerizim and, and Mount Zion. She's troubled by the Samaritan Pentateuch versus the, the Jewish Pentateuch. And uh, they can't both be right. So which is right? Anyway, there's more that happens here. But notice that just that, that free-flowing water. I love it. And it, 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 it gives more opportunities to, uh, to speak of, of other things. Anyway, our fathers worship in this mountain, and you people say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. She's got, she has a prophet in front of her. She's going to get this thing answered before she lets him leave. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Anyway, it's pretty neat. The way the Lord answers and the way it uh, results, she's going to go bring the men of the town in. And uh, there'll be a revival right here, a Samaritan revival. I love this. All right, well, let's get to uh, John 7. Look at the rest of these. 38 and 39. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. What's the innermost being? That's the heart. We're talking about the core of who we are. And that desperately wicked thing that only God can, can see that, that old man that's crucified, we now have a new heart, creating me a new heart, we're told. We have a new nature in Christ. And from there comes this living water. And it flows. By this, he spoke of the Spirit, 
whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Notice there is a huge difference between Old Testament salvation and New Testament salvation, the practical effects of which are extremely different. The the resources we have in Christ as church-age believer priests are far beyond anything that an Old Testament believer would ever ever, uh, understand, including the the Holy Spirit indwelling each one of us, the, the, the living water that we can speak with and minister to others with. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Now again, this is in a speaking context. Uh, we, I put this slide together in, in the illustration of uh, Proverbs 18, which was a speaking context. For today's purposes, of course, we're talking about planning, the plans of a heart in a thinking con- uh, context. I believe the same principle relates that we don't want to just to sit in the core of our being and, and fester. We want to communicate it. We want to bring that plan forth like we would bring a message forth. And so letting the Word of Christ richly dwelling within you would be a part of this. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we have a walk with the Lord and we express it. We communicate it. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're we're communicating one with another the the glorious things that God is doing in our life. And so we're communicating. I believe this would include the plans. If a man of understanding draws the plans from the deep parts of his heart. And so we have a plan and it's, it's a plan that God put on my heart and it's, it's been growing and, and I've been more and more convicted of whatever that plan is. Case in point, sitting at the old building, we uh, just grew under more and more conviction that we, that we couldn't fit in that place any longer, that we had a seminary, we had more students, we needed more space. And uh, it, so it became the plan of the heart to, uh, to relocate to sell that place and buy a larger place or build. We ended up building. We didn't know what we were going to do at first. But it started as a plan deep in the heart. And it didn't just sit there. A man of understanding draws it out. And so share that plan. Share it with like-minded brothers and sisters. Share it with your deacon. Share it with everyone that will be praying about that plan. It's designed to be communicated with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Uh, Colossians 4.6 Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And keep in mind this grace, this grace salt seasoning might be calling them brood of vipers. Do you think Jesus' speech there was seasoned with salt, was was gracious? I believe it was. Yeah. See, we get this this bad idea that that to be seasoned with salt and to be gracious means we're just mamby-pamby, nice, milk-toast kind of pushover kind of... No. If they're a brood of vipers, call them a brood of vipers. That's gracious. Okay. Same thing with a woman. Yeah, you've had five husbands. The one you have now is not your husband. That's gracious. Seasoned with salt. Sometimes it's tough. Just because it's gracious, uh, filled with grace, seasoned with salt, you know, if it's true, it's true. 
so you will know how you should respond to each person. All right. So just like words, I think thoughts are the same way, that uh, the plans of a heart, and, and really, what are words anyway but the expressions of thinking? And so uh, we don't want words to fester. We don't want thoughts to fester. We don't want plans to fester. The, that uh, a man of understanding draws it out. That plan that's deep in your heart, did God put it there? Draw it out. Share it. Manifest it. Don't just sit it down in there and let it fester and do nothing. A man of understanding draws it out. All right. Next week we'll come back and we'll look at verses 6 and 7. We've got a string of verses here with loyalty, trustworthiness, righteousness, integrity, um, character traits that that we want the Word of God to shape and fashion within us. And uh, these are the things that the Word of God produces um, organically. It's not artificially enforced. It's not legalism to try to uh, manifest a certain behavior. It's, the, uh, it's submission to the Word of God and letting the, the Word of God shape who we are. Because this is going to be the outcome. Anyway, we'll deal with that. Loyalty, trustworthy, righteous, integrity. Yeah. Verse 9, who can say I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin? Well, we can when the Word of God does it. When God saves us by His grace, we can say that. All right. So Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. Father, I thank you um, for bringing the Word of God alive, that we're, we're learning it, we're living it, we're sharing it with one another. Father, it's, uh, it's such a joy. And I pray that more believers would get hungry for truth to recognize that salvation is the, the, not the end of your plan, it's the beginning of your plan for their life. That once they uh, have eternal life, we spend the rest of our life as disciples in the Word of God, living, learning, growing, uh, fellowshipping, in all these things, Father. It's a glorious plan. Thank you for designing it the way that you have. Thank you for equipping this stewardship, the Bride of Christ, with the resources you've given us, Father. We've been given so much, we know we're accountable. So open our eyes to the applications. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.